This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield is retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today on the show, we welcome back Dr. Brett Hendrickson, professor of biology at Millsaps College. He's here to tell us about some of the scorpions and spiders found around Mississippi. Not all these creatures are venomous, but we'll talk about staying safe when these crawling creatures are around. Also, Dr. Bajor here, always ready to take your pet questions. So join our conversation with a phone call. The number is one mpb ring It's one 672 Or you can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if uh, you miss the Creature Comforts broadcast on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, all. Hope everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. So let's start with some good news. The Mississippi Museum of Natural Science is open again. It opened this Monday, but with new safety guidelines to keep all visitors safe. You're required to wear a mask, and timed arrival reservations are required to visit the museum. If you need some more information, you can call the museum. Their phone number is 601-576-6000, or go to mdwfp.com slash museum. So that's all from good news. Also heard that the uh, Children's Museum in, in Jackson is also reopening with a similar type of schedule where appointments are required. But it's good to see uh, some of these uh, you know, ways to get out and uh, have fun learning are starting to open back up for visitors to enjoy. So, Dr. Yeah, Major, I guess go ahead, Libby. I was, I was just going to chime in. <clears throat> Remember that uh, that'll include the trails behind the museum. Okay. So it's a, another good place to get outside and walk. Very good. Um, Dr. Major, we're talking today about scorpions and spiders. Uh, do pets often come to the clinic with uh, spider bites or scorpion stings? Very, very rarely. Uh, we usually don't see anything. You know, cats cats especially are good patrollers of the house. They, they can dispatch a spider or a roach or whatever else pretty easily. And rarely do, they, do we see a bite that you can really attribute uh, to a spider or a scorpion. Okay. So, uh, so you say with the cats, maybe they've outfoxed them. With the dogs, just maybe not interested, smart enough to stay away from them. What do you think? <laughs> That's a good question. We could debate that whether they're smart enough or whether they just don't notice and don't care. Uh, I would say that uh, cats are much more inquisitive. And of course, curiosity killed the cat. Is true. <laughs> uh, but uh, they are quite adept at uh, uh, what shall I say, dispatching. Uh, most spiders, if they can get to it, or any other creepy crawlers that might be in the house. Yeah, that, that's one way I know that some sort of insect or bug has gotten in the house because I'll, my cat will be just like legs are focused, staring uh, directly at it because uh, they, they, when they sense their prey, though, they can, they can lock in on that. And so it's kind of fun to watch. Exactly. Uh, Libby, we have an email here that says, I put up a nesting box for eastern bluebirds and had a pair show interest immediately. They're currently tending their second brood this year, and we're enjoying watching them. The parents work nonstop feeding the babies, bringing them lots of bugs. But I don't like the thought of bugs coming into my house. So my question is, is it safe to spray insecticide around the house and yard, or would this potentially harm the bluebirds? Um, 
what I would say, and this is based on a little bit I've read on from the extension services, that would be best not to spray in the yard with those uh, bluebirds out there because baby bluebirds particularly are very sensitive to any kind of chemical. And remember, uh, the parents are harvesting insects from all around. In fact, there's some evidence that bluebirds go over an area of about two acres to harvest insects to feed their babies so that would include kind of a big area that it would be nice it would be healthier for those birds if you were not using poisons in that yard while they're raising their babies particularly and I guess what you do inside the house is uh, confined and up to you but um, I would say that um, outside would be a good idea to avoid that. Well, as you point out, the the bluebirds are actually culling the insect population. They're certainly not contributing to more bugs being around your yard. So uh, maybe it would be a good idea to kind of let them do their thing, natural insect control. And as you said, inside, uh, you can take whatever matters you need to keep yourself bug-free on the inside of the house. Yeah. The only exception outside, I guess, would be if you've got termites or something, you're going to have to deal with that. But other than that, I would say let's... uh, let those birds have a have a good chance. All right. Uh, so we hear some chirping uh, there in the background, Libby. What? Who's uh, who's visiting this morning? Oh gosh, the thing that I've enjoyed most this morning are the yellow-billed cuckoos. Uh, some people call them rain crows. I grew up calling them rain crows, and it seems like I do hear them more when it's humid weather. But uh, it's been a lot of fun. They've uh, been moving around the yard. Uh, so I've heard them from all directions, and I've got a prothonotary warbler pair that are feeding babies at the other end of the porch where I'm sitting, so I've been able to watch them while I'm sitting here getting ready for the show, and uh, they're just absolutely beautiful and very busy, so those babies are getting big. They're uh, probably a couple of weeks old now, so I'll bet that they're going to fledge soon, and I'm hoping I'll be here to be able to see that. All right. Uh, Dr. Major, here's one that you might be able to help us with, not sure, but it says, my neighbor seems totally unconcerned that her rooster has bumblefoot. Is she right to be unconcerned, or is her inaction neglectful? Well, that's, that's that's a good one. Uh, and I suppose that the lady has diagnosed bumblefoot. Usually, it occurs as a growth, a large uh, growth on the foot, often on the uh, the uh, plantar surface. In other words, the bottom of the foot. Uh, gosh, it needs to be treated. At the same time, it it may be difficult to treat. Uh, I would suggest the neighbor. Uh, talk to the neighbor with the chicken and have them contact the extension service. There are booklets on uh, controlling uh, avian diseases, and I think that would be a good place to start. The uh, extension service uh, in each county uh, certainly could could help wherever she is. Dr. Major, I, th- I think I remember hearing that you had large animal vet veterinary practice in your background, but if someone who would have chickens, roosters or something, are there a number of vets uh, in the state uh, that co- sort of cater to those types of animals? There may be. I, I, do, see, I do see chickens uh, here at the clinic occasionally. Uh, they, they're a little bit special. Of course, I've had chickens myself, and uh, 
they they require some special needs, but they're pretty independent. Uh, they're again going back to care and uh, treating and taking care of your chickens. There's some excellent materials that the Extension Service can provide. Uh, most of the uh, veterinarians that are involved in with chickens are in large commercial type situations. In other words, where they're uh, working with uh, people that are raising broilers or turkeys or this sort of thing. Uh, but you're right. The Extension Service and also Mississippi State University would be a great resource for folks if they have uh, questions about that. And uh, I love the name Bumblefoot. I, I don't think I would like to be uh, afflicted with that, but but you never know. <laughs> of course, the Extension Service and Mississippi State University are all connected, so right. that, uh-huh. that would be that would be good. Okay. All righty. Uh, it's time for our first break of the hour. When we return, we'll talk with one of our friends of the show, Dr. Brett Hendrickson. When he's not studying, lecturing about scorpions and spiders, he's a professor of biology at Millsaps College. So when we return, he'll talk about some of the creepy crawlers of Mississippi. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, professor of pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest for the hour is Dr. Brett Hendrickson, professor of biology at Millsaps College. We'll bring Dr. Hendrickson into the conversation in just a minute, but we do have another email here, uh, and it says, enjoy the show and have a wildlife question. There's a group of abandoned buildings taking up much of a block in my neighborhood in Bay St. Louis. I was walking just before dawn recently and saw a fox run across the grounds. It was exciting, but I didn't think much of it until a few days ago when I was walking by the same buildings just after sunrise and saw saw two small foxes huddled around a culvert. They seemed wary of me, but not afraid enough to run away. So I gave them as much of a wide berth as possible. Uh, They watched me pass by. They were smallish and two of them, so I'm guessing young. Will they all probably move on in search of food and more cover at some point, or are they likely to remain? It's a fairly densely populated area without nearby woods. Is there a possibility of negative interactions with neighborhood pets or kids? I don't know if I should notify local animal control or just let them be. We certainly have raccoons and opossums around, but this got my attention. So any help that you can give Melissa would be greatly appreciated. Uh, some input maybe from both of you. Let me, let's start with you with your thoughts. Okay, um, it's not unusual for foxes to raise families very close to human habitation. But uh, what concerned me was when she said there are no woods adjacent at all. That might make a problem for them hunting. Uh, They're probably doing a good job of catching the, the mice and smaller rats in that building or that complex of buildings, which is good for that community. But um, you really, I would suggest that maybe you do alert the authorities. If there is a, a um, animal control there in Bay St. Louis, it might be a good idea for them to know that. I would really hate for them to kill the foxes. They might have to think about moving them at some point if they run out of food and get to be a problem in that neighborhood. But usually foxes are pretty smart about living in a place where they will do well. So there's, 
I'm, I'm betting that there's a good chance. It would be nice to get out there and explore the area a little bit and see if they have connections to some woods where they can uh, be comfortable hunting. But other than that, I, that's, that's all I've got to say. Troy can talk about the, the pet interaction. Yes, uh, cert certainly it's something for concern, but foxes have adapted really, really well in most cases to neighborhoods, uh, and there's plenty of rats, rabbits, this sort of thing available. They can also predate on cats. Uh, they've been known to take cats, so that is a concern, and certainly uh, that uh, leave them alone, and by that don't don't try to interact with them. Don't try to feed them. And, uh, and Libby's probably right. It depends on the neighborhood. But in most cases, they uh, have their den and raise their uh, pups. And then a lot of times they will move on to a different area. All right. So it seems like the consensus is probably it is a good idea to notify uh, animal control and, and possibly they could be relocated uh, to a more suitable habitat where they can uh, do better than having to rummage around in, in a more urban environment. So uh, this, at this time, let's uh, bring our guest into the conversation. We welcome Dr. Brent Hendrickson, professor of biology at Millsaps College. Uh, Brent, thanks for joining us again. You've been on the program talking about spiders and scorpions, but uh, remind us, if you would, about your history and background with these uh, creatures. Uh, good morning. Uh, thanks for, for having me again. Uh, so I, I've probably told this story on the show before, um, but my, my interest in spiders goes back close to 40 years when I was three years old and my, you know, my, my oldest brother had collected uh, a large jumping spider. Um, he, he put it in a jar and he caught a fly and he handed me the jar and he just said, watch this. <laughs> and uh, this is sort of my, my first memory. And I remember this, you know, this very stealthy uh, jumping spider kind of, you know, pouncing around the jar and he finally just jumped right onto the, onto the fly and started eating it. And so I became fascinated with spiders from that moment. In fact, that, that same day I took that jar out into my backyard and, and collected every spider and every insect that I could possibly find, not really making the connection that, you know, spiders are these magnificent predators and you know the next morning ended up with just one really big spider <laughs> jar um but you know there's I, i've been you know just absolutely fascinated with um you know spider and scorpion their their, their diversity um their you know their their sort of ecological importance um so it's just been a, a really you know, interesting group for me, you know, this, this passion in these animals developed when I was really young, and it's uh, just really, really nice to, you know, still have that passion and to be able to have a career that, um, you know, really is based on that passion. Uh, you know, in an alternate universe, I envision you uh, having a different experience with that and, and growing up to be a filmmaker, you know, the attack of the giant jumping spiders or something along those lines. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, our Absolutely. producer, Java, reminded me that you have a millipede named after you, a species found in eastern Tennessee. If you would, tell us that story again. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so when I was in graduate school, um, I, I was working on a group of spiders that are sort of largely distributed throughout the southern Appalachians. And I was in the middle of a, a collecting trip. It was 
don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning, pitch black. I was tired. Um, and I was looking for a place to camp. And, um, ultimately I came across this closed campground, um, and decided I wasn't gonna be able to camp there, but I, I hopped the fence really quick. I probably shouldn't say that <laughs> to go look for some spiders. And, uh, sure enough, I found a couple of millipedes that, um, my, my friend and colleague Paul Merrick, uh, was working on as the group. And I, I didn't know at the time. Um, I just knew that he was working on, on this group of millipedes. So I collected a handful of them and then I brought them back, um, uh, to the lab and, you know, sometime later, I think I'd probably forgotten that I'd collected them and uh, Paul had mentioned that they, they were distinct, um, that there was, was a new species and that he was going to name it after me. So I was, I was really flattered and, and, and proud of that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting field stories involving spiders, scorpion, millipedes. <laughs> <laughs> so what is the name of the millipede? So the, the millipede's name is a Brachoria hendricksoni. All right. Um, so I think that the, the common name is like Hendrickson's mimic millipede or, or something along those lines. That's a that's a pretty cool story there. Uh, we've got some open phone lines. If you have a question about spiders or scorpions for our guest, Dr. Brent Hendrickson, Dr. Major here, ready for pet questions as well. So join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. It's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So we'll start talking about scorpions. Uh, are there a lot of scorpions in Mississippi or the South in general? Because I think a lot of people kind of associate them with being in in arid desert-like conditions. Yeah. So, so we do have one sort of native uh, species of scorpion in Mississippi. Um, Kind of sometimes referred to as the, the southern devil scorpion or the southern unstriped scorpion. Um, not super common in that it's not distributed all across the, the state, um, but there are locations where they're they're pretty abundant. Um, you know, sort of east of the Mississippi River, there's only a handful of species, really only four or five species. Um, most of them are restricted to you know, further southeast and down into into Florida. Um, there's also an introduced species in Mississippi that is not frequently encountered, and it's probably it's called the striped bark scorpion, which is much more common west of us from Louisiana and you know, Texas, eastern New Mexico, and surrounding areas. Uh, but it's probably been introduced either by coming in on you know mesquite or, or some other type of, of, of brush. But um, yeah, we do have a little scorpion out here. Um, it's primarily distributed. There's kind of three major areas of sort of uh, called endemicity, so where the, the scorpions are found in Mississippi. And uh, the first one is up in you know the northeastern part of the state, so Tishomingo County in particular, Tishomingo State Park. We we tend to see the scorpions um, quite a bit um, down in Wilkinson County in the southwestern part of the state uh, between you know Woodville. Um, and Fort Adams, uh, that area sort of adjacent to Tunica Hills, uh, so Clark Creek Natural Area. They're pretty common out in that area. And then um, Lauderdale County, so Meridian, so the Bonita uh, running trails um, out there are probably one of the most dense populations of, of scorpions that I've seen, not just in, in Mississippi, but really anywhere in the United States. Uh, you can go out there. 
after dark, um, search for them using an ultraviolet light, and the ground sort of glows like a constellation of stars uh, that, that the scorpions, and we can talk more about the fluorescence of scorpions if, if we'd like as well, um, but they're, they're, they're fairly common. But um, again, in the Jackson area, typically don't see them. I'm, I'm unaware of any records of scorpions in the area unless it's one of these introduced species that just someone came by, by by accident more than anything else. But given the amount of work that I've done in the area, I haven't really seen uh, much in terms of scorpions in the immediate Jackson area. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and our guest today is Dr. Brent Hendrickson, Professor of Biology at Millsaps College, talking about spiders and scorpions, but Dr. Major here ready to take a pet question as well. We do have a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to David from Horn Lake. David, you're on the air with us. Go ahead, please. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. i got a question about a weed that's come up in my flower bed. We call it poke salad. Uh, is that weed, the berries on it, is that a good food source for birds. If, if it is, I'm going to leave it growing. If not, I'm going to cut it down. So it's pokes out a good food source for, what did you say? David, we'll check on that. You could also possibly call Felder Rushing tomorrow morning on the Gestalt Gardener. It airs at 9 o'clock. Uh, he's our gardening and horticultural expert, uh, so my, he might have some uh, input on that as well. We appreciate uh, you giving us a call this morning. And if anybody has any thoughts on it, they could they could chime in. Okay, go ahead, Libby. These are good for, I'm sorry, somehow I, I lost connection for a while. But poke salad berries are good for birds. Okay. All right. Thanks for the call, David. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, uh, visiting with Dr. Brent Hendrickson. Uh, we've begun our discussion about scorpions, and uh, Brent, you mentioned the three areas that they're primarily found in Mississippi, and I think one is uh, is sort of in the southwest corner, I think one in the northeastern corner, if I remember, and then one sort of in east-central Mississippi. Those seem to be kind of geographically dispersed. Is there some maybe type of uh, habitat that's common there that uh, supports the scorpions? Yeah, a little bit. So um, there's, there's, it, it's kind of baffling um, to myself and some of my colleagues who, who are working on this group of scorpions. So the scorpion that's in Mississippi is also widely distributed throughout sort of the, the southern Appalachian area. And, uh, you know, some of the habitat that we typically find them in is uh, sort of drier uh, pine forest where we can find them, you know, hiding during the day. We can hide them, you know, sort of hiding underneath um uh, pine bark, um, any cracks and crevices that they can get into, they tend to favor drier conditions as opposed to it being really moist. You're not going to find them, for example, necessarily near a creek bank or down in the creek, but they tend to be a little more upland. Um, areas that tend to have more um, outcropped rocks tend to be a little more favorable uh, for these scorpions as well. Um, but uh, sort of the, the discontinuous distribution within the state um, perhaps is due to, you know, the, the lack of exposed rocks in some of these, these other areas um, throughout the portions of the state. Um, but genetically, we've looked at these animals, and they're all very similar, which suggests that the, the movement, this, sort of the dispersal of these scorpions throughout the state has been 
relatively recent. Um, so that's something that we're, we're trying to get our, our minds wrapped around right now. We don't think that they've been introduced by people to these areas, but we're still trying to, to piece that story together. Uh, so a minute ago, you mentioned bringing along a black light when you're scorpion hunting. So do, do they glow under a black light? Yeah, this is actually this is a really fascinating discovery made by geologists. I think back in the 1950s um, or 1960s that they were using ultraviolet lights in order to look at different minerals, and uh, they came across <laughs> scorpions that were fluorescing this just really brilliant sort of blue green color. And so when we hunt for scorpions, um, you know, scorpions are generally nocturnal. Um, it's very rare for you to find them out and about during the day unless they're in your house or something like that. Um, but when you're, when you're out in the field, um, they're typically not going to be found exposed during the daylight. Um, and so having these ultraviolet lights on hand um, after dark is, is really handy, and they're really easy to see. And if you have a powerful black light, you can see even uh, you know, a scorpion that's about an inch or so long from, you know, 30, 40 feet away. Um, we, we don't have a complete understanding on, because usually this question goes to, you know, why, why are they fluorescing? Um, you know, we, we sort of understand that they have these different molecules in their, in their cuticle or their exoskeleton that absorb the, the, the ultraviolet wavelengths of light, and they, they convert or sort of transduce that ultraviolet light and they emit it. Um, as a different wavelength that tends to be sort of this blue-green. Um, so we understand, you know, sort of what we call the, the, the proximate cause for this, but the ultimate cause um, is still sort of eluding biologists. Um, you know, there's been some studies that suggest that maybe fluorescence has something to do with scorpions' ability to detect and perhaps even avoid ultraviolet light, and there's been some really interesting studies recently um, that showed that there's sort of this, uh, even you can cover a scorpion's eyes and they can still detect um, ultraviolet light. They still respond to the light. So uh, one of the leading hypotheses right now for this fluorescence might be that um, scorpions are sort of using their, their entire bodies as sort of light detection um, devices and they, they convert this ultraviolet light um, into this different color, and this information is transmitted to the brain of the scorpion, and they use that to determine whether or not they're being exposed to light. So even if they're out at night, the moon, for example, emits a little bit of ultraviolet radiation. And given that these animals are nocturnal, and you know, a lot of things will eat scorpions, um, their ability to sort of avoid light um, is really advantageous. So we think that their, their fluorescence might have something with their ability to avoid light. Uh, but there's th that story still coming together. Wow, that's uh, that's fascinating. It does make sense, as you were saying, if they're sort of night creatures, that uh, uh, sensitivity or an awareness of ultraviolet light would certainly uh, come in handy, that's for sure. So time for another break. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Dr. Hendrickson, but we'll add spiders to the conversation. Mississippi's home to a number of different spiders. We'll let you know how to tell them apart, so stay tuned. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 
This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. And our guest for the hour is Dr. Brent Hendrickson, professor of biology at Millsaps College. If you missed any of today's program, you can always subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app, or you can download the MPB public media app as well. And to join the conversation this morning, our phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Brett, let's transition a little bit and talk about spiders. I think much like snakes, a lot of people think, you know, all spiders are icky, bad, that sort of thing. And the first thing they want to do is grab a shoe and smush one, kill one, that sort of thing. Are all spiders harmful? And what role do they play in the larger ecosystem? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. And I I run into this quite a bit, Um, you know, especially with with, with students initially and trying some of them who take my courses um, and my entomology courses. And at the beginning of the semester, they um, tend to be pretty intimidated and frightened by spiders based on sort of learned behaviors, maybe from parents or other folks. And then by the end of the class, they realize, you know, these these animals are actually really cool and they're, they're really not that that harmful to people. Um, so one of the biggest things is that spiders are, are perhaps the, the, the largest and most diverse group of, of terrestrial predators um, on our planet, and they're responsible for really keeping insect populations in check. Um, so they're, 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 they're actually incredibly beneficial to us to have them around. I understand that uh, folks are worried about their bites, um, but the vast majority of spiders um, in Mississippi, um, although we don't know a lot about their venom, um, it's, we generally expect that you know these, these are relatively small animals, and even if you did get a pretty decent bite from one of them, the, the venom's probably not very dangerous from the vast majority of, of spiders in the state. Um, you know, all spiders, save a couple of, of odd families that don't have venom glands, nearly every spider is considered venomous because they do have venom to incapacitate insects primarily, uh, but it's not dangerous to, to, to people. But again, the, the benefits of spiders are sort of innumerable. Uh, there's, there's so many reasons why we should consider having, um, you know, especially in Mississippi and places where, you know, we've got a, a pretty healthy mosquito population, of course, mosquitoes being vectors for a variety of different uh, diseases and being able to control those is just one of the, the many, many reasons why uh, we can consider spiders beneficial. Uh, so we, before we leave our scorpion discussion, are scorpions related to spiders in any way? Yeah, I mean, so, so scorpions are arachnids. Um, so they, they belong to sort of a, a bigger assemblage of, of arthropods that um, include um, terrestrial animals that generally have, you know, um, eight legs, um, a pair of structures that are known as pedipalps. So when you think of the, the, the pinchers of a scorpion, those are the pedipalps, which are homologous or, or the same structure that are sort of this the first leg, sort of leg-like appendages that are found um, on the front end of a spider. They also share these characteristics known as chelicerae, so they're sort of their mouth parts, these appendages um, that have sort of these opposable structures that help capture and tear prey. Um, so they are related in that sense. They're, they're kind of distantly related arachnids, uh, but they, they are still you know, related within that group. 
Um, with spiders in general, I think one thing that's kind of fascinating to me are their webs. You know, if you're maybe out in the woods walking around or whatever and you see one, it, it looks to be very delicate and it kind of is and maybe in structure, but they're they're extremely strong. So uh, have we learned anything from, from spider webs? Has that helped us with uh, human technology at all? And give just a, a little bit on, on webs. Yeah, so, so that's one of the most fascinating things about spiders is their ability to produce silk. And silk has a lot of uh, you know, properties such as strength and extensibility that have been um, really sort of the, the, the push for you know, researchers to understand those properties in order to develop you know, things of, from everything from you know, lightweight sort of bulletproof vests to, to finding structures that can be used for wound treatment, uh, you know, a variety of other possible sort of extensions of those types of things. So it's, it's a really active area, you know, textile and sort of materials research um, on, on spider silks um, that, that a lot of researchers that are, are working on. So there's been some interesting breakthroughs recently in terms of being able to sequence up the, the genes that um, in the silk glands, so understanding the actual protein makeup of, of these uh, different silks has been really, really important. And once you sort of understand um, that component, then you can understand the function and be able to really, you know, think of new and improved sort of applications of, of how spider silk can be used. So are webs primarily used for capturing prey or, or are there some other uses that the spiders make them for? Uh, I mean, they, they can use them for, uh, you know, courtship and, and other sorts of things as well. They're primarily used uh, for capturing prey, but some spiders will, like tarantulas, for example, which is the group that I, I tend to work most with, they probably don't use silk as much for prey capture, but it might be used for lining their burrows to kind of keep things tidy, um, although they might have some sort of lines of silk radiating out from the burrow entrance that, um won't necessarily stick to an insect, but it might transmit sort of vibrational signals to the spider, letting them know that there's prey nearby. Um, they, of course, they use silk for covering up their egg sacs. Um, uh, they can use it for sort of defense. Um, so black widows are a good example of this. They have an incredibly sticky uh, silk that um, sometimes when they're harassed by by even a person, for example, if you had a stick or something, you're poking around at a black widow, they will they will frequently you know they'll, they'll often retreat, but if they don't, if they're um, aggravated enough, they'll they'll take some of this really sticky silk and kind of um, you know withdraw from their, their these organs called spinnerets, and it'll kind of fix that that object that's tormenting them and kind of sticks it to the you know keeps them out of harm's way basically. Um, so there are a lot of uses that spiders use silk for. All right, so we got another caller on the line, so we say good morning to Julie, called in from Mobile. Good morning, Julie. You're on the air with us. Howdy. How are you? Good. Um, I have a question unrelated to spiders, but um, to ticks. Um, I've been hanging out with a guy um, who's doing a tick project in Mobile. Um, we're going up, and we're um, taking samples from all the counties, how many ticks we can find. And I've noticed that definitely anything before the anything below the Alabama fall line we get hardly nothing. Everything above the fall line, we're always coming home, you know, bags packed. Is that the same in Mississippi? Do um, coastal counties, lower counties have a lot smaller chick population than northern counties? 
Anybody want to take that one? Yeah, I probably can't answer that one, but if anyone else. Libby, any any thoughts on that? You know, I don't know, but it, I've just made myself a note that it's time for us to do another tick show, I suppose, <laughs> right? So let's save that question for the tick show. All right, well, thank you all so much for having me. Sure, Julie. And, uh, you know, keep listening because, yeah, we've had our tick guy on uh, several times. And so we'll, we'll go ahead and reschedule that. Should have him on hopefully maybe in the next couple of weeks. We appreciate uh, your calling in uh, this morning. Kevin, all right. Have a good one. Go ahead, Dr. Major. Yeah, the ticks, you know, usually come in waves, I would say, what we see. And, of course, we see sometimes uh, a dog will come in with not just dozens but 100 ticks or so on it and certainly can be detrimental. Some of it, I think, has to do with the deer population. Uh, others, where you've got livestock, uh, the ticks are interchangeable to a certain extent. Uh, but I, I haven't seen any diminishing of ticks in this area. We've got plenty of ticks, so I'm not sure. What was her question exactly? Uh, she was wondering if, if the more south you go, the, the tick population is greater. I think she was saying, based on her studies in Alabama, it seemed like there were more uh, I think more common in, in the southern part of the state. She was wanting. No, if, she said they were, she said they were uh, less common. I've, all right, so I've got it backwards. Yeah. She said they're yeah. less common along the coast. So the further north you go, the more ticks would be. Right. And I was wondering if that's the same here. Right, that's interesting. I don't know that anybody's uh, done a study on that here, but it would be interesting to see. We have plenty of ticks here in the Jackson area for certain. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, yeah, yeah that's uh, maybe a, a topic for our future show, Libby. So if you could maybe help us out with that in the coming weeks, that would be uh, an interesting show to do. Uh, we're visiting on Creature Comforts with our guest, Dr. Brent Hendrickson, professor of biology at Millsaps College, talking about spiders and scorpions. So, uh, Brent, f- tell us about the different types of spiders in found in Mississippi. How many? And maybe give us an idea of what size range they were talking about, from maybe the littlest to the, to the biggest. So there haven't been any formal studies sort of documenting the diversity of, of spiders in Mississippi. There's been some sort of smaller scale studies, but I would estimate um, there's got to be several hundred different species, um, if, if not more. And they're going to range in size from incredibly small, um, like little linofeid spiders, which might, you know, be slightly bigger than the, the head of a, a pencil or something like that to some of the larger wolf spiders and maybe fishing spiders that may reach a lake span of close to three and a half to four inches. Um, so the, the size diversity is, 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 is massive. Um, you know, and including, I'm just thinking of ground spiders, even then when you're looking at some of the web building spiders, of course you get the, the big golden silk spiders, I think often referred to as banana spiders down here um, that, get absolutely enormous. So in September and October, the big females will be in their webs, very, very conspicuous. These large webs that might span, you know, six to seven feet across kind of in the, in the forest areas. Um, the trails behind uh, the museum are a great place to, to see these. Um, you'll see a number of different insects trapped in those webs, and you'll see the, the, the just the giant females there and the, the little tiny males um, courting them. Also, these really interesting spiders that are called kleptoparasites that live in the webs of these, these big spiders. So size diversity um, and sort of the ecological diversity of spiders in Mississippi is, is really big. 
All right, let's uh, take our last break for the hour. Earlier, uh, Brent mentioned that he's interested in tarantulas, so we'll talk about that when we get back. Still time for you to get a question answered or tell us about your latest brush with nature or pet question for Dr. Major. The phone number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 or send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. Back to wrap up the program after this last break. We're back on Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield, and our guest today is Dr. Brent Hendrickson. Still time to join the conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 You can email the show. Send it to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Brent, as you mentioned earlier in the show, you're sort of interested in tarantulas, uh, some of your study that you do. Uh, so tell us about the tarantulas in Mississippi. Well, we don't actually have any tarantulas in Mississippi, <laughs> which I think is, will probably uh, relieve a lot of, a lot of folks. Uh, but uh, so we don't have any in the state. We do have some relatives, so uh, trapdoor spiders. They're, they're, they belong to a larger group known as mygalomorph spiders. Um so we do have trapdoor spiders here, but tarantulas, we can, we can begin finding them sort of on the other side of the Mississippi River. Uh, once you kind of get out of the delta and get into some more drier areas, you can, uh, in, in sort of central Louisiana, um, in, in adjacent areas of, of Arkansas as well, we tend to start picking up um, the, the tarantulas. Um, so a lot of my work uh, focuses on those areas, but I'm beginning to become a little more interested in the the again, that group, the mygalomorph spiders that are in Mississippi, because I suspect they might be a little more diverse than, than what we sort of understand right now. All right. I, a couple of spiders I think we do find in Mississippi, the black widow and the brown recluse. Uh, a little bit about them and, and how how dangerous they are, if, if you think they are. Um, well, black widows and brown recluse are, are both fairly abundant um, in the state. Uh, they've probably been documented um, from every county. Uh, turns out that in the widow spiders is actually three different species in Mississippi. So there's the black widow. There's actually two different types that, have, uh, that, that, that occur here. So there's the southern black widow and there's the northern black widow. They're, they're mostly indistinguishable from each other. They're sort of, they have this big, uh, the females have this big sort of shiny black abdomen, and on the underside of it, there tends to be sort of a, a, a bright red um, hourglass shape. Um, in the northern black widow, that hourglass is sometimes broken up into a couple of spots, but that's probably not the best way to identify them. You'd actually have to look at um, some of some other sort of minute features on them to distinguish them. And that we also have a brown widow, uh, which is not native to Mississippi. It's in fact, it's not native to the United States, but it's been widely introduced um, to southern coastal areas throughout the country, probably originated um, from, probably came in on ships or something like that. Uh, but though they, they tend to be relatively common. They are actually very abundant in the Jackson area. Um, we've seen them, my students and I have seen them uh, actually on the grounds uh, behind the museum. We've seen them um, at a local, near a local sort of um, tennis court on, on the chain link fence there. Uh, so they're fairly common. Brown recluse are also very common. 
Um, Round clues are probably one of the most frequently misidentified spiders um, in the state and throughout the country. Even though they are present here, um, they're, they're often confused because they're, they're sort of uh, a brownish spider. The easiest way to identify them, not that anyone's going to get this close uh, to see this, uh, but they tend to have sort of a, a, a darker brown kind of violin shape on their head region, their cephalothorax, uh, which you know, sometimes they're called violin spiders or fiddleback spiders. Um, and they also, only, as opposed to a lot of spiders that have eight eyes, brown recluse have six eyes. But again, most folks aren't going to get that close to, <laughs> to, to count the, the number of eyes on the spider to be able to identify them. Now, in terms of how dangerous they are, I think their reputation is, is worse than um, what it's uh, been really made out to what, what, what is reality. However, their bites can be potentially life-threatening, particularly for folks that are you know, compromised, um, um, young individuals, children. Um, they have very different types of venom. So the widow spiders have a neurotoxic venom that affects the nervous system, which can cause a lot of pain. Um, potentially some breathing problems. Um, brown recluse bites, they, rather than having neurotoxic venom, they have sort of a cytotoxic venom that tends to destroy cells, and it can also be hemolytic, which can break down red blood cells if it um, becomes really bad. So um, very different types of spiders in terms of the, the symptoms that they present with their venom, um, but my recommendation for anyone, if, if they, they think they have been bitten, is to, of course, seek medical attention. All right. Two minutes left in the show. It's time to squeeze in one last phone call. We'll go to Preston in Atala County. Preston, good morning. You're on the air with us. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, sir. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. I don't think millipede or centipede, but these little things are about an inch long, and in the early part of June, they come out by the thousand and just crawl across the concrete floors and driveways. And ain't nothing you can put on the ground to kill them. I'm sprayed gas and stuff straight on. Still don't kill them. So I'm just wondering what those things are. I mean, they, they come in, they die. They don't even get in any hole they can find to get into a building, stores and everything, you know, and then they, they, they'll die overnight or so on it. And you have to speak them up. Brent, any idea what that uh, might be? I don't know if I'm not sure. I haven't heard of uh, millipedes, maybe, that are abundant this time of year. Yeah, it's possible. I have noticed, at least down uh, where, where I'm at in Rankin County, that the uh, the millipede population has begun to increase a little bit. I haven't seen the big waves um, that Preston was describing there, uh, but it, it is possible. There's there's a variety of different species of millipedes in the state as well that, that they're going to run the gamut of size. Um, so it, it is quite possible that um, that's what those are. Um, but I, I, w- I would have to see them to, to know for certain. All right. About 30 seconds left. Real quick, maybe a, a, an online resource for folks wanting to learn more about spiders? Um, a, a really good place to, to check out might be the American Arachnological Society's webpage. We're actually going to begin a, a virtual conference uh, this afternoon, which is real, we're really excited about. So uh, folks who want to learn more about spiders, yeah, check out the American Arachnological uh, Society. All right, uh, that's going to wrap us up. Just a reminder, you know, animals at mpbonline.org is our email address. You can use that during the show if you want to send in a question or a comment, but you can also send it in throughout the week, and we'll try to get it on the air uh, the next time we come on the air. 
So Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding is provided in part by generous listeners like you. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can go to mpbonline.org slash Creature Comforts. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Brett Hendrickson, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned because up next, it's AutoCorrect with the lady auto mechanic, Allison Walker. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Conference, heard only on MPB Think Radio.